get by now, maybe you're already in Genesis 2. And so we can look there together this morning as we turn to God's Word. Uh, One of the things you may have noticed as we've been going through this series over the past few weeks is that Genesis, and this is by design, of course, is a book about orientation and initiation into God's world. It wants to show us reality. It wants us to show us the world as it really and truly is. And so it's an explanation of our human story. Now, many of the great stories, the different uh, creation myths of other religions and other worldviews attempt to do this. But I think one of the special things about the story of Genesis is that it does this in a way that I think has resonances even today, not just with ancient cultures of ancient time periods, which now we read those myths and there's very little that we resonate with or can understand. I think as we read the book of Genesis, it still makes sense of our world. It orients us to our world. And this reminds me of a a beloved quote from C.S. Lewis, who wrote in an essay, Is Theology Poetry, he writes these words, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So not only is Christianity something that we, we see, but Christianity, and Genesis in particular, helps to explain the world as it really is. That's the marvelous power of Genesis, explaining to us our existence, explaining to us our world, our place in the world, and why the world is the way that it is. And so we've seen in the last few weeks the power of God in creating the world, creating a world that is full of his diversity and beauty and glory. We've seen that it was created good, how he marks it with that statement each day, and it was good. And it was very good when it comes to the human race. And so we know that this world is a good world. How incredible that truth is, especially in the ancient context, when it was the tendency for many to see creation as an inherently evil thing. Material things were seen as bad, whereas spiritual things were seen as good. But the Christian faith says that the creation is good in itself. And then, of course, we see that we are created in the image of God. So we learn about ourselves. We learn about our human dignity and our value before God and to one another. This helps us to see about our ability to think, our rationality, our ability to build and to create, to make things, our ability to love and to share in a fellowship of a relationship with the Lord. And then last week we saw how God builds into our world a rhythm of rest. We know our world breaks down. We cannot continue to continue working every single day, every hour. We as humans and all of creation needs rest. And this, of course, is where the New Testament picks up on this narrative and says that there is a coming rest. There is a future. All creation groans, Paul says, but there is a future where there will be a Sabbath rest, an eternal rest with the Lord. Next week, we'll even learn about marriage and the harmonious relationship between God and men and women and how he has designed us to live in that relationship together. And then, of course, even in the weeks to come, we'll learn about sin and the fallenness of our world, the curse that sin has brought into our world. But this week, we're going to be learning about the the place that God has put us in, this world, and what he has divinely commanded us to do. 
as we work. That will be the main theme of our message this morning. What has God called us to do? And so with that in mind, let's pray and ask for his blessing on our time this morning. Lord, we are your people. And more than that, we are your sheep. You are the shepherd. You speak and you tell us that your sheep will hear your voice. And so depending on this promise this morning, we come to your word, asking that by your spirit, you would help us to hear, not only audibly with our physical ears, but internally with the ears of our hearts, and that we would respond to you in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The first name, or the name of the first, is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, perhaps it's a bit of an overstatement to say it like this, but I think that without this passage, we wouldn't quite know who we are as human beings. We wouldn't quite understand our place, and things may not really make sense to us. And so to illustrate what I mean, I'll start with a question for you, for you to ponder. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know quite why you were there or what you were supposed to do? Uh, You were sort of placed somewhere and you had no idea what you were to do next. For me, this brings to mind a season of my life, which I will never forget, though I wish I could, of my first sort of real job, you might say, working at CVS in my hometown of Kingsburg. 
Now, I started this job my uh, senior year of high school, kind of that end of the year, right before summer, so it was really my first college job, you might say. And at the time, and many of you who were living in California may recall, not CVS, but Long's Drugs. Long's Drugs. Before CVS came in and bought Long's Drugs out. And that's an important part of the story because I got hired by Long's Drugs. I was working as a normal clerk, working the register, stocking the shelves around the store. But when we got bought out by CVS, many changes took place that made the circumstances of my workplace quite difficult. One of those great changes was that uh, they reduced the the, uh, store employees at any given time from being five people to being two people. So it made it very hard. They expected us to do the same amount of work with only two people instead of five. But one of the great other changes that took place in the pharmacy, which was not my realm, I didn't do anything with the pharmacy, I hadn't been trained for the pharmacy, was that they were going from doing handwritten work to computer work. And all the pharmacy technicians who were working in there, working with the insurances, getting in touch with insurance companies, trying to figure out how they could cover the bills of of the customers, uh, they'd been in there for, some of them, 20 or 30 years. They knew how to do it by hand, but they had no idea how to use the computers. And so what this meant was that the pharmacy slowed down uh, greatly. Things in the pharmacy came uh, to a lull, and things were stacking up. People were not getting their prescriptions with the speed that they needed. And so in the move of desperation, they decided to start putting clerks like me back into the pharmacy without any training. This was one of the hardest summers of my life. Uh, Not being told ever what to do, learning on the fly what I had to do, always asking questions to an already stressed out staff of pharmacists and technicians. Uh, Constantly I was asking questions because I didn't know what to do. There was never any training or modules for me to watch or anything like that. I was thrown to the wolves, it felt like. And I was the one who had to deal with the customers. Then I would have the angry customers and they would be the ones, or I'd be the one who would receive the uh, the punishment, as it were. So this was a a very stressful summer for me. And this is why I think Genesis 2 is so important. It fills out and explains the specifics of Genesis chapter 1. Each of these two chapters give us different but complementary accounts of the creation story and of our human origins and of our purpose before God. And both of them, as they give these different aspects of our existence and of the world that we live in and even the callings to which God has given to us, they help us understand better what we are doing here. So if we only had chapter one and we only knew that we were created in God's image and called to be fruitful and multiply and that we were given from God dominion over the land and all of the animals of the sea and of the land and of the air, and he's given us all this vegetation for food, what we would be able to take away from that uh, is that we're called to eat a lot of food. We're called to rule over creation and the animals as God's stewards, and we're called to make babies. We're called to reproduce, to have children. Now, all of these things are, of course, good things for us to do. These are things we absolutely should be doing. Theologians commonly refer to that passage at the end of chapter 1 as the cultural mandate. It's God's mandate for us to go and to fill the earth and to rule it and subdue it. 
These are good things, but without Genesis chapter 2, I don't think we would have this sort of full, complete picture of what it means to be a human in this world. We'd probably all have a fairly skewed understanding of who it is and what, or who we are and what we're called to do. And so this is important because this helps us to, again, have that orientation and that initiation in our world. I think we could get the wrong idea, actually, if we didn't have chapter 2. I'll go on the record and say that. I think we could get the wrong idea without the second chapter giving us more of the details, filling us in. Like me in that pharmacy, it would have been great if somebody could have trained me and helped me know what I was supposed to be doing, as I was now sometimes even the one contacting insurance companies, having no idea what I was doing, no qualifications for that. And so... I think we could, if we didn't have chapter 2, undervalue the gift of work. That's what we'll see this morning. And so while there are many different directions we could take this passage as we talk and think about the Garden of Eden and God's creation, and maybe you might be wondering, well, where is the Garden of Eden? That's a great question, but not something we will get at today. Uh, we're going to focus in on one verse here, really, uh, with a serious uh, focus. And that's going to be Genesis 2, verse 15, where we see these important words that are going to be kind of our guiding light for this morning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So often today, for many of us, the common approach to work is to see it as a burden, something we have to get over. It's a hurdle to our joy. We have to get over our work and put up with it. We have to do it just to make ends meet, just to pay the bills or to keep the lights on, to put uh, food on the table for our families. And maybe for some of us, we, we only feel like we need to do work because we're people pleasers. We just don't want to let our boss or our coworkers or anyone else down. As a kid who grew up in the late 90s and 2000s, I was born in 1990, uh, so I grew up in that interesting phase of time, and one of my favorite things growing up in a Christian home was punk rock music, Uh, but my parents being good Christians, they would allow me to listen to Christian punk rock music. There was such a thing, if you can believe it or not. And there's this one song that has always stuck with me. It's still a song I enjoy just because I think it's kind of funny. You know, it's that sort of uh, teenage angst, you might say, being expressed. But it's a song by a Christian punk band called MXPX, and the song is called Responsibilities. Uh, And I think uh, the main theme of this song speaks to the way many of us in our society today kind of naturally think about our work. And so the lyrics of the chorus go like this. Responsibility, what's that? Responsibility, not quite yet. Responsibility, what's that? I don't want to think about it. We'd be better off without it. I don't want to think about it. It's a funny song. It's a song that if you're maybe 10 years old like I was, it's, uh, you know, you don't have too many responsibilities, so you can revel in your responsibilities But I think we approach our work like this, as something to just get through. We don't want to grow up and take on the responsibilities of work. And so some of us live for the weekend. Some of us live for the occasional day off. We love uh, Labor Day because it's a way of celebrating that we get a day off, right? And so 
for some of us, even despite our not-so-great feelings about work, we'll still even try to white-knuckle it to get through. Maybe we'll work overtime uh, because we're driven by some kind of reward. Uh, but this could even lead to the other side of the ditch of becoming workaholics, people who uh, are sort of addicted to our work, who, we tre- who treat our work as an idol. But on this, gr- this sort of other train of thought, what we think of work, or where we think of work as an obstacle to our joy and to our satisfaction, it might be helpful for us to conduct a simple thought experiment. What would life look like without work? Can you imagine a world without work? As people living in the year 2024, I don't think we actually actually have to think that hard about this. We can begin to imagine this. This doesn't even seem like it's that far off. If you go to a, a grocery store, there's self-checkouts. If you go to a fast food restaurant, you can use the digital kiosk to order your meal, or you can order it ahead of time using your phone. Uh, there's artificial intelligence today that does so many amazing things for us. It can create whole essays for us. It can create even sermons. Uh, It can create prayers. It can create all sorts of things. You can write papers if you're a high school student. All of these things are making us feel like we're living through an epoch shift in our world, and I think in many ways that we are. It's this whole idea of living without work is not really a stretch of the imagination. And back in 2008, Disney and Pixar, they, they went with this thought experiment in a movie called WALL-E about a robot who is left on the earth to clean up the earth in the year 2805, and he's cleaning up the earth. He's, the humans have sort of left it a desolate, deserted place because of their consumerism and their frivolousness and how they treated the environment. They were so given to corporate greed, and they just didn't care about the planet anymore. And so humans go up to this spaceship called Axiom, and they are living there waiting for the robots to clean up this disgusting, gross, desolate, dead earth. And Wally meets another robot uh, who comes down to earth to see how things are going. And he falls in love with this robot whose name is interestingly Eve, E-V-E. Uh, and he follows her up. He chases her back to the main spaceship, uh, to the Axiom. And when he sneaks in and tries to find her, he finds a whole world full of humans. But these humans are not your normal humans. They are basically uh, couch potatoes who spend their lives being waited on hand and foot by robots, by different machines. They, They don't even talk to each other when they're side by side. They have video screens that project in front of them so they can talk to their friends who are right beside them. There's one scene where Wally accidentally knocks one of these humans out of their seat, and the human is is so big, he can't get up, he can't do anything for himself. Wally has to hoist him back into his seat. And so we see a little bit of what this might look like. While it, it, the movie portrays it as a sort of utopia, it also shows us that it's a dystopia. These humans think they're living in a utopia. There's no work. They have everything given to them by these robots who are doing it all for them. They may even think that's ethical. They're not using human slaves. They now have these machines, but the movie shows us that it's really a dystopia. It's really a dark place. And instead of being humanizing, it's actually very dehumanizing to them. And when you watch it, you can't help but feel a sense of uh, being repulsed, as if something is shaking you to your senses, helping you to see that work 
hard though it may be, difficult though it may be, work in all its painful glory is actually not a barrier to our human joy, but it is a pathway or an avenue towards it. And I think this is the vision of work painted for us in Genesis chapter 2. Here we learn that in God's good world, humans are not only made for work, but work is made also for humans. Work is a part of God's good design for us and for his creation. Therefore, we might say that our work done before the face of God and done in obedience to him for his glory and for the good of others around us is holy work, no less sacred than the work that I'm doing even right now, standing before you and presenting to you, proclaiming the good news of the scriptures. And it's no less sacred than the work that that Pastor Mark does when he administers the sacraments and baptizes new members or new children. It's no less sacred than the work we do when we go out and we visit people uh, in their homes who some of them are even dying, sitting there on their deathbed. It's no less sacred what you do in your workplaces than what we do here as ministers. It's for this reason that the great 20th century British crime novelist turned Christian evangelist and apologist Dorothy Sayers, a great saint of the 20th century, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, she writes these words, Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. The only Christian work is good work well done. Good work, well done. There's a world of truth in that simple statement. It's a great and concise, even a powerful way of putting it. When we do our work well, work that is pleasing to God and contributes to those around us, to our neighbors, it is then truly spiritual work. And this grand theme, I think, is brought into clearer relief for us in our passage once we grasp one critical element of the story being told here in Genesis 2. And it's this. The Garden of Eden is planted by God here as a prototypical temple. It's a prototypical place of worship. It's a temple or a tabernacle, a place where God's presence dwells freely among his people, his image-bearing creatures. But what do I mean by that? What do I mean that it's a temple? And how can I sort of prove my case and explain that sort of uh, controversial statement? Well, first, I think what I mean by it is fairly straightforward. The, The garden is a temple. It's where God dwells with his people. He dwells among them in his presence. There's an immediate presence of God. He is there walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, as we see. And so it's a place where his presence is. And this means that if if his presence is there, and by placing Adam there, Adam is effectively the first priest. He's the first priest of this temple. And he's giving him his orders to work in this temple. And while on the one hand his job is quite earthy, you might say he's, he's commanding him to garden and to landscape, to take care of this garden God has planted, it's also thoroughly spiritual and holy. He's working and keeping the place where God dwells. Now, of special importance in making my case here are the two Hebrew verbs that we see in verse 15 that are translated here in the ESV as to work and to keep. The first one, to work, which comes from the Hebrew word avodah, 
can also mean to serve, to till, or to cultivate, and even in some cases to worship, to worship. The second word from the Hebrew Hebrew word shamar, translated here as to keep, can also mean to guard, to keep it, to guard it, to keep guard, uh, you could even say. Now, there are times throughout the Old Testament where these words are used in their sort of normal, you might even say secular meanings, uh, but there are also times when they are used in clearly religious uh, meanings, with religious senses in mind. Uh, we see both of these kinds of senses at play throughout the Old Testament. But one of the great examples of where they're used religiously can be found in Numbers 3, verses 7 and 8, where we read these words about what the job of the Levitical priests was to do in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, of course, being the sort of portable temple before the temple of Solomon was officially built in his reign. So we see these words, they shall keep or keep guard shamar over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister or work or avodah at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And so now, while there are plenty of other reasons for associating the garden as a, with a temple, these two images, by putting them together, uh, I think the, there's great many reasons. The, the imagery of the river that flows out of Eden, we see this at the sort of garden temple of the eschaton in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we also see the imagery of the garden all over the temple when it's actually built, uh, I actually just watched this amazing video this past week. There's a digital walkthrough you can do of the temple now. There's an app developer that's created an app where you can walk through the uh, temple, that, which would have been the second temple, the temple in the time of Christ. But you can see throughout it uh, that they put all the imagery of, of a garden inside the the, uh, the holy place and the holy of holies. And there, even the, the menorah, the candle, is meant to be uh, a representation of the tree of life. All these garden images are placed within the temple, sort of connecting them both. But I think that this idea of, of seeing Adam's work as working and keeping, I think that that's maybe the most convincing for me as to why the garden is a temple. Uh, and there's, there's even a more, more we can think about this, I think. The incredible thing about this particular word, avodah, which of course means to work or to serve, to cultivate or to worship, uh, it, as I said, it's used in both of those senses, religious senses and in secular senses, if we can use that word. So we find it, for example, in the Exodus story, as the slaves were told are, the, the Israelite slaves are making bricks. They are working uh, to make these bricks for their captors, for the Egyptians. We see it also later on in that story in reference to the building of the, the temp or the tabernacle by the sort of artisanal craftsmen who are using their skills that God has given to them to build the tabernacle now, having already been released and freed from Egypt. We see it even in the book of First Chronicles and the genealogies there of people who were linen workers who crafted the fine linen that would be used uh, for the temple. But of course, this leads us to one grand question. All of these different usages of this word, avodah, that's interesting, but so what? 
What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with our work today, with your work, whether it's in a school or in a hospital or in a home or on a farm or wherever it may be this time tomorrow morning that you are? And here's, here's what one author and pastor named Tom Nelson says about this, and I think what he says puts it very, very well. He writes this, the various usages of this Hebrew word, avodah, found first in Genesis 2.15, tell us that God's original design and desire is that our work and our worship would be a seamless way of living. Work and worship being brought together. Properly understood, our work is to be thoughtfully woven into the integral fabric of Christian vocation. For God designed and intended our work, our vocational calling, to be an act of God-honoring worship. And so what he's saying here is that we ought to envision and understand our work and our vocations as having our, their roots in the original mandate of the Lord, seen here in Genesis chapter 2. Our jobs and the various other things, whether they are official work or unofficial work, that we do in our lives, they are to be carried out with this single truth in mind. By God's grace, my work matters in the kingdom of God. That's a truth you should hold on to and, to and consider as you go about whatever job it is you do, however mundane you might think it is. So long as it's good work, the work that is morally honest and morally honorable, it is infused with eternal significance in this grand human story, dating all the way back to the Garden Temple of Eden and stretching all the way to the Garden Temple of the New Jerusalem. And it's because this is the case, our work ought to be conducted first and foremost as a way to glorify the Lord. And secondly, for the common good of our society, for those around us, our neighbors, our communities, our loved ones. This past week, as I spent time meditating upon this passage, thinking about it in reference to our church, uh, I couldn't help but continue thinking to myself that of all the churches I, I've known, uh, Almond Valley is perhaps one that doesn't necessarily need to hear this, I kept thinking. This is a church that knows the value of good, honest work. Uh, I'm regularly inspired by the commitment that each of you have to your work, to your workplaces. This is a hard-working church, a church that knows, I think, sort of intuitively that our worship is through, can be done through our work. Our worship extends from here on Sunday mornings out into our workplaces in our homes. Again, I'm the one who's so often encouraged and inspired by you. Uh, even by those of you who have retired from formal work uh, at this point in your lives. Uh, I serve at the Thursday lunch uh, group on Thursdays, of course, with so many students that come through our doors. Who's there to help serve? Well, it's me, the other youth pastor and the youth director from different churches. We get paid. There are people there who serve every week every single week who are in their 70s and 80s who come and help, retired though they find work to do to serve the Lord. And so one recurring thought for me this week is to make sure I not only spend time teaching about work, but to encourage you to continue seeing your work as a way of glorifying the Lord. And so 
I do, however, think as, as a pastor, it's my goal, it's incumbent upon me to, to push you and to motivate you, to give you maybe some, some tips or pieces of scriptural advice that will continue to boost you in the days and even the years ahead as you think about your work and its place in the kingdom of God. And so you, can, you might think of these as my tips for gardening. I'm not a gardener. I don't have a garden. Uh, but thinking about what the scriptures say about work, uh, I want to give some sort of more insight onto what the Bible has to say about our work, whatever it may be. And so the first I, would, I think about is to consider your contribution. I've already kind of gotten at this a little bit, but take time, I would say, in the next week or two to deeply think and to consider all the different ways that your work can be glorifying to God and blessing to others. It can be a way of boosting their lives, creating and establishing and helping human flourishing taking place. Uh, Of course, when we think about human flourishing taking place in our world, we need to think about what God calls human flourishing. Uh, If you're helping somebody do something that that they would like to already do, but you know would be wrong, you're not creating human flourishing. You are doing the opposite. Human flourishing is something that's defined by God. What does it look like for human beings to flourish? And how does my work contribute towards that goal? Some of us may have jobs that are quite simple in, in, in understanding how this helps people. If you're a nurse helping keep people alive and healthy, that's, that's a simple thing. Others of us may have jobs and callings and vocations that can be a little bit more indirect as to how we're helping. But still, I think you ought to consider all the ways that your work does in the long run help people. Even if you work as a garbage man or you work in the sewer industry, it doesn't matter. Your work can have great things that you give to others. That's a way of loving your neighbors. The second one is work as worship. As I've said, do your job in a way that honors God. Paul tells us famously in Colossians chapter 3, this simple commandment, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So our work is to be done in a way that is conducted toward the glory of God. We get that, I think. That's a simple truth, work for God's glory. So work hard, work for him. But how does this change the way we go about our work? It would be easy for us to think that as long as I'm being successful in my work, I'm, I'm helping my family, I'm doing my responsibilities, uh, regardless of, of what kind of people I'm, I'm uh, sort of manipulating, people I met might be doing uh, deceitful things towards, what kind of ways am I, am I sort of lying, in, maybe in order to make a buck? Uh, are, there, are there sort of things that I'm doing that are uh, trying to push others down in my workplace so I can advance and push myself up? If we're doing things under God's watchful eye and for his glory, it ought to really change how we do things even when no one's looking. Are we taking a little extra money for ourselves? Are we cutting ourselves a break when we shouldn't be? Uh, whatever it may be, we need to think about the ethics of our work knowing that even, and maybe even especially in those moments where no one else may notice, our work can be honoring or dishonoring to the Lord. Thirdly, strive for excellence. So this ties in with the first one, if we're doing it for, or the second one, if this is being done for God's glory, we ought to do our very, very best. We ought to give it our all. 
Uh, many times in, throughout Christian history, Christians have thought about how a Christian ought to go about their work. Uh, famously, uh, this question was asked to the reformer Martin Luther, uh, who says that a Christian doesn't need to put a cross, if a, a Christian shoemaker doesn't need to put a cross inside every shoe as a way to mark that they're a Christian. Uh, they need to make the best shoe possible. Similarly to this, Dorothy Sayers, to quote from her again, she writes these encouraging words, I think, that, that are really helpful. She says, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. It's kind of just moral instruction. Don't be uh, given to alcoholism and make sure you're in church on a Sunday. She says what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Good work done well, she says. We should strive always for excellence in our work when no one's watching, and especially uh, when's no one, when, when no one's watching. But we should also think about the ways our work serves the benefit of others and how we can be driven to help them, driven to do things for them. Our work is not in order to make a living, first and foremost. Our work is to glorify God and to love others. The next thing to keep in mind is that we are to beware the thorns. Beware the thorns. One of the most important things about work, which we've not quite covered this morning, largely, largely because it's something we'll get to in the weeks to come, is that our work is affected by sin. We work in a fallen world. We work in a place where our work is not easy. It is not the sort of soul-satisfying thing that it once was in the Garden of Eden. It still has that sort of potential, but it is fraught with major difficulties and pains. Uh, many of us, I'm sure, have had experiences, like I did working at CVS, for example, where I didn't find much joy in my work. It was a difficult thing. It was a struggle and a burden. And we, we see this, we know this is the case because Genesis 3 verses 17 and 18 tell us this. This is a result of the fall, one of the great curses of the fall. And to Adam, he, that is God, said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's thorns and thistles, but also notice what we read in that last verse, uh, verse, uh, it's verse 19 there. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In the garden, what was Adam eating? Fruit plucked right off of a tree. No work involved. That's how he was being fed. Now, cast out of the garden, living now uh, east of Eden, he's eating bread. He has to work. It's, bread's not something you pluck off of a tree, unfortunately. Work is involved. And so his existence is now shaped and marred, and our existence with him by the curse of the fall. And then finally, the fifth thing I, I will say to us this morning is to remember the gardener. Remember the gardener. It's not for nothing that in the Gospel of John, way into the future of the 
redemptive history of the scriptures, the Gospel of John includes for us the seemingly odd detail that Jesus' tomb was laid in the midst of a garden, which we would believe is the Mount of Olives, not too far from where he would have been, uh, he would have been crucified. And so it's interesting that in that next passage from John 19 down into John 20, uh, as Mary and Martha go into, to find Jesus, to, to anoint him, and to find his body, they go and they come across an, uh, two angels and they speak with them and then they're continuing to look. They're so disturbed by the whole scene and by the pain that they feel that when they see Jesus and he asks them a question, why are you weeping and who are you looking for? We're told these interesting words that Mary was supposing him to be the gardener. Now, the crazy thing, of course, is that Mary was incorrect in some sense, but she was really profoundly correct in another. He was the gardener. John is not just including random details frivolously into the story. He is telling us something. He is pointing to a grand theme throughout Scripture. God is the vine dresser. Jesus is here as the gardener in God's garden. And now some kind of new life has begun. That is the great truth here. And so the incredibly important thing to keep in mind uh, here as in our work is that Jesus is the gardener. He's the second Adam. He is the one who was going to finish where Adam failed. He is going to live righteously where Adam sinned. And so we may think that our work, uh, we should do our work, that it's going to produce uh, good things in our world just through our great efforts. And we can, if we work hard enough and do enough, we will usher in the kingdom of God. That is just not the case. Jesus is the gardener. Jesus is the gardener. Like the gardening of Adam and the Jews, the Hebrews after him, uh, that had been a bust. They had failed, but Jesus has come. And so we need the true gardener. This is why we need to remember his work in the garden, which is beautifully mingled with the story of death and resurrection. He is dying and being raised to new life. A new garden is here. This is the true work of God in the new Garden of Eden. And the failure of the first Adam to work and keep it is now being fixed by the success of Christ. Everything is being reversed. And so in Christ, this garden, his kingdom, which grows and starts like a mustard seed and grows and grows and grows, it is now in our very lifetimes growing and building. And we are seeing the fruit of that here with ourselves we see the fruit of Christ. I see it as I look and ponder the body of Christ. God is, God is building his garden, his kingdom and his holy priesthood. The church is being stretched out to the ends of the earth. And so now, brothers and sisters, even our imperfect work and striving, when it's done by faith, when it's done in obedience to God and for his glory and for the good of others, he incorporates it into his purposes for the earth. And so we pray with these words from Psalm 90, asking the Lord to do this. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we turn to you knowing
that you have called us to this great task of work. Whether our work is as a child in a classroom, or whether it's uh, in our later years serving our friends and family and others around us. In whatever capacity, Lord, we ask that you would help us to have your vision for work, that we may see it 